Shani. Jamie. I'm Chaya B today. <laughs> I can see you look exactly like her. I all want ice cream. I don't even have any. <laughs> It's not one. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Hello. Adina. <laughs> Pierre. Hello. Hello. So good I'm to see so you. Good to see you. <laughs> oh, you just disappeared. So nice. Good morning, Leia. Hello. Oh, my goodness. So good, good to see you guys. <laughs> good to see you. Wow. Are you home, Adina? Um, I'm living with my grandma in New Jersey, but oh, wow. typically I reside in Baltimore. Yeah. What about you? Are you in Brooklyn? Me? You're, you're in Canada, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm in Edmonton. Wow. Oh, have you been joining on some of the classes? Um, I've been going to this one pretty regularly. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Awesome. How are you, Devor, Leia? I'm good. I'm home. Yeah. Like all of us. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's a real treat to have these classes again. Yeah, it's amazing. I like feel Israel in outside in the backyard. <laughs> yeah. Makes it a lot. But yeah, it's good to see like some old faces. Each other. I know. Yeah. I've seen a few scattered throughout. <laughs> Do you come on often, Adina? Um, I've been trying to go to at least one a day. That's been my goal. But this is my second one today, so that's pretty good. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Are you working, Sapir? Like, hmm? Do you have regular work and stuff now, or what's been going on for you with Corona? Um sort of like I'm still working for Hillel right um yeah but that's ending in June like my contract ends in June so <laughs> we'll see yeah it's tough for everyone but like I think I should be my done my I should be done my thesis um then so well I get to go home it's big yeah um, I'm teaching art online, so that works. yeah, it's been really cool. So I have a lot of my students, and still teaching art and learning a lot. So. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What about you? Regular. Probably yeah. doing similar things to you, Sapir, because we work in. Um, I work at a Chabad house for students, so just like kind right. of you know, but it's a little different, obviously. Yeah. Students are yeah. Cool. <laughs> I know it's so good to see everyone. Ago. What do you mean? In the same place? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have suffered between. <laughs> are you in your Jenna? Mm -hmm. How do you even do that? I saw you Oh, I'm 
come up. Hi. Okay. Hello. <laughs> Sitting in the sunshine. Glorious. <laughs> hey, Jamie. Miss Jabber. Okay. Hello. If everyone could mute themselves. Um, we can get started. Okay. Right. We are in chapter four of Tanya. We're discussing fear and how fear leads to the negative um, the performance of the negative mitzvahs and is actually clothed in the negative mitzvahs. Now, the part that we still have to explain um, is that in this section, the Altar discusses, or doesn't discuss, but he makes reference to two kinds of fear of Hashem. Um, and uh, that's something we have yet to actually address. So that's what we'll start with today. If we finish that, we'll move forward in the text. If not, then we'll move forward tomorrow, I guess. So he mentions two kinds of fear. The first one is, he says, Fearing to rebel against the supreme king of kings, the holy one, blessed is he. So the first fear is described as a fear of rebelling against the king. And the second fear, he says, and this second fear is a deeper fear, is when the person feels ashamed in the presence of the divine greatness to rebel against his glory and do what is evil in his eyes. So if we look at the text, um, what do these two fears have in common? Can anyone see what they actually, assuming you have the text in front of you, which I hope you do, what do these fears have in common, other than the fact that they lead you to um, observe the negative commandments? But the actual fear itself, in describing the fear, um, what, does he, what, does he, what does he say about them that is similar between the two? It's fear of rebellion. It's fear, fear of, of rebellion. rebellion. Fear of rebellion. Okay. Now, what is the difference between these two kinds of fear of rebellion? They're both about the person. They're both come from how the person is feeling but within the person is coming from a different place. Like the fear is both based in the person, but it's based in a different place in the person. Okay, when, when, he actually, when he actually describes the difference, um, what does he actually just say is the difference? What is the, what does what he mention in one that's absent from the other, mention the other that's absent? You know, what words does he use to differentiate these fears? Being ashamed. Okay, so the deeper fear has an element of being ashamed, okay? Whereas the first one doesn't have an element of being ashamed. What else? The first one is, is a fear of punishment, and the second one is something inherent, something like very guilty, something very like unto yourself. Well, does he actually mention the word punishment? No, but I guess it's more what the king feels rather than like what he feels of himself. Well, so we're gonna we're gonna hold I'm gonna hold off on that because we're gonna we're gonna be talking about how fear of rebelling against the king and fear of punishment are in fact nothing alike, but we'll get to that. So one is fear of the king and one it doesn't have an element. Glory. And one is fear of the glory, right? 
it mentions the presence of the divine greatness, the glory, right? Now, even that thing that we said that they have in common, the rebellion, if you look in the Hebrew, he actually uses two different words for, for, for rebel. One, the word that he uses for rebelling in the, in the first sphere, the one we're talking about, the, uh, Hashem being a king, it says limroid. Limroid um, really does mean rebel. Um, but then when he talks about the second fear, the deeper fear, um, he doesn't use the word limrate. He uses the word limrace. Does anyone know what the word limrace literally means? If you speak modern Hebrew, I'll say it in modern Hebrew, limrot. Does anyone know what that word means? Despite. Right, it means despite. Okay. Um, so if you say like, you know, did, you know I, I, I went to the park despite uh, the fact that, uh, I don't know, you weren't supposed to, right? So it, there is an element of contrariness going against, but it doesn't have that very specific connotation of authority that the word limroid or rebel actually does. Now, I'm not going to discuss why the translator translated both the same way, but it is telling that in the Hebrew, the Alter Rebbe did not use the word limroid in the second fear. So it is true that when you are rebelling against the king, not you because you would never do such a thing, but when one rebels against the king, one is doing things despite the authority of the king. That's true, but it is not the case that, 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 um, going against or doing something despite is always really strictly speaking strictly speaking strictly speaking a full out rebellion um or merida against an authority okay so now before we go deeper into the these differences between these fears i want to start with a general thing someone mentioned fear of punishment Chabad is a very large is a very large literature there's a lot of discourse a lot of my marm there's tanya in all of the discourses of Chassidus Chabad, okay, fear of punishment is mentioned, to my knowledge, I believe three times. It's possible there's one or two others I'm not aware of. I'm not an expert, but it is, you can count them on one hand. Okay? And if you actually go back to, to the second generation of Chassidus, before the division into the different branches of Chabad and other versions, when you back when you had the, the leadership of the Magid, the successor of the Baal Shem Tov, the Magid actually has a discourse where he addresses this, and he says, and, and the point is very simple, is that there are two kinds of fear. There's fear of punishment, and there's fear of the king. Right? Now, don't don't get caught up on the king as opposed to ooh, the, the two levels in here. Okay, what is the difference between fear of punishment and fear of the king? Fear of punishment is you don't want to get hurt. And so you avoid the things that will cause you pain. So who is it that you care about? Who is it that you are ascribing value to in fear of punishment? It's yourself. And how do you view the other? You view the other as a threat. So if I am not doing a sin because I'm afraid of punishment, then A, I'm entirely being focusing on myself, and B, I view God as a threat to me. And so then the Magid makes the following observation. If you view someone as a threat to you, you do not want to get close to them. You want to avoid them at all. You, right? you don't have any desire to develop a deeper relationship with them. Okay. So if fear of punishment means that you view God as a threat to yourself, fear of punishment prevents you from actually growing closer to God. Okay? Fear of punishment, it makes God into an enemy or it, or, or, or it relies on God being an enemy. Okay? This is why um, Chassidus, um, and specifically Chassidus Chabad, as a general rule, does not mention fear of punishment as a level or as a stage in one's growth in developing a relationship with Hashem, because it's not. It's not even not a stage. In a certain sense, it is the opposite of a stage. 
it is it is it is a it, it is taking a step backwards. Right? Now, in later discourses of Chassidus, it actually says a second reason why fear of punishment is antithetical to relationship with with Hashem, and that's because in fear of punishment, you're focusing entirely on yourself, and the idea of a relationship with someone else, especially with Hashem, is in, is 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 making space in yourself for valuing them, for appreciating them. And so whether it's love or fear, whether it's av or yira, they have to have this element of bit, this element that it's not entirely about me and me alone. But fear of punishment is about me and me alone. So, you know, just to, to make this very simple, if you are afraid of a tiger, what you're afraid of, what you're afraid of is your own, what you're afraid of, the, the only thing you care about is you, you don't care about the tiger. You think the tiger is a negative thing. And if that's how one views Hashem, then we have the problem that A, Hashem is viewed as a threat and as an enemy. You have no desire to compose. And B, the person is wrapped up in their own personal welfare, their own personal well-being, which is the opposite of opening oneself up to a connection to others, and especially connection to Hashem. So fear of punishment is viewed, not, is viewed as not part of developing a relationship with Hashem, and it's actually in a form of klipa. It is not a level of holiness. It is a form of klipa. Um, as we learned earlier, the klipa covers over godliness. And the, the chassidus actually says that the only time fear of punishment is appropriate is if it's the only way to stop a person from sinning. Because the klipa of sinning is worse than the klipa of fear of punishment. You want to think of a you want to think of an analogy. When is it okay to take a sharp knife and stab it into a person's chest? Surgery. Surgery, right? But you need to be in a pretty desperate situation to justify it, right? <laughs> the 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 um. One of the uh, standard pieces of advice that the Rebbe would always give is that one should always get a second opinion in medical things in general, and especially about surgery, and especially from someone who's a friend of you, a doctor or a medical professional who's a friend of yours, because surgeons, um, unfortunately, the statistic is that the number of surgeries done tend to be proportional to the number of surgeons. Surgeons are very quick with the knife. But if you think about it, surgery means someone is sticking a knife into you. It has to really warrant that. And so in a certain sense, it, 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 it's really the same thing. The klipa of fear of punishment, the fact that God turns into something negative in your mind and you're totally wrapped up with yourself, that's only justifiable if it's the last stop to prevent a person from actually sinning, from actually transgressing. But it's not really constructive to build a relationship. If you want to think of an example from driving, um, when you drive on, you know, up like fast or places where there's windy roads, there's often those um, little guardrails on the side of the road by the turns. You know what I'm talking about? So it's important that they're there. Why is it important that they're there? Because God forbid someone loses control, whatever, they don't fly off the cliff, right? But if, but, but you shouldn't be using those things. Like that's not really like, if that's what you're using to stay on the road, that's, that's like, they, you're not, you don't know how to drive, right? It's like, of course I know how to drive. I just keep, I just keep, you know, scraping along the side and, and, you know, as a thing forces my car to the left or to the right, then I, that's how I turn, right? That's not a method of driving. The guardrail is there to prevent you from falling off. So fear of punishment, it's a guardrail to the abyss of sin, but it's not really a mode of building any kind of connection. Right? Now, the Rebbe actually um, develops this idea, and um, it's actually mentioned in earlier places, but the Rebbe develops it in, in, in a few places, that we have a principle that we've actually seen in this chapter, that the source of all positive mitzvahs is love, and the source of all negative mitzvahs is fear. Well, guess what? One of the positive mitzvahs is as Hashem the Lord your God you should fear. So it is a positive mitzvah to cultivate a fear of God. And if the rule is that love is the source of all positive mitzvahs, then why would you be trying to develop a fear of God? Because you already love him. 
Meaning that the fear of being discussed, that's really the true mitzvah of fear, and the fear that's being discussed in Chassidus, is since I love God and I want to have a relationship with Him, I realize that, I, that if I don't have this element of fear, the relationship won't be as it should. In other words, that the, that the underlying motivation for cultivating a Yiddish Shemaim, a fear of heaven, is a desire to be close to Hashem, and that is a means to achieve that closeness. Um, later on in Tanya, in chapter 41, the altar will elaborate why fear is so important and so critical, above and beyond just stopping you from sinning. Um, so what the Rebbe actually says is that um, if you think of an example of a, a child or a student, they have to have a, a fear of their parents or their teachers not a fear they're going to punish them, but a, 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 a fear to disrespect them, a fear to contradict them, a fear to displease them. That has to be there. Um, the Gemara is quite clear about that. And only then is the, they're the proper um, place to really learn and to grow. However, before that fear, there has to be a general feeling of warmth and positivity that you actually, you know, the, the, the child, the student, feels positive about the teacher, the parent, um, and wants to be in that relation, wants to learn from wants to grow from them. Because if that underlying positivity, that warm environment isn't there, then the person is closed off. And the same thing is true with Hashem. There has to be an overall atmosphere of warmth and positivity towards Hashem, viewing Hashem as, as a positive influence in my life, at the minimum, and as the central and, or, or even sole good thing in my life at the, at the ultimate extremes. And then from that general perspective, from that general attitude, from that feeling of warmth, there's a need to establish certain um, boundaries, certain ground rules, certain, certain um, attitudes that fall under the general category of fear. So this fear is, is justified by a desire to come close and it serves the purpose of furthering closeness. Nothing whatsoever like fear of punishment. Okay. Now, there is a mimer, there is a discourse of the Rebbe where the Rebbe elaborates on the idea of fear of punishment. And he says something which I think is quite intuitive to most people, um, but it, it's nice to see it actually said quite explicitly in Chassidus, which is that if you don't sin because sinning makes you feel guilty, you feel, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to right now be um, use a lot of synonyms to make the point. You don't sin because you feel guilty sinning, you feel ashamed sinning, you feel dirty sinning, whatever the case might be. That's actually fear of punishment. Why is that fear of punishment? Because you're punished by a negative feeling. Yeah, but why is it punishment? It's still all about you, right? In other words, the thing I don't want is I don't want to feel dirty. I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to feel, right? I don't want the negative byproduct, which is why you will notice that if a person has that mindset, if they can rationalize away the feeling of guilt or shame or dirtiness, they have no inhibition against the actual sin. To, to put this to put this in a in a, in a very clear sense, imagine someone comes and says, "You know, I don't want to I don't want to murder my neighbor." You're like, "Okay, that's an interesting opening to a conversation." Continue. Says, "Yeah, because I know that if I murder him, I'm just going to end up in prison, and that's not cool, right?" And so you're thinking to yourself, "Well, if the reason you don't want to murder somebody is because you're going to end up in prison, I kind of think that means you do want to murder them, right?" And you're just afraid of the consequences, right? So now, take this a little versus life. Someone says, I don't want to murder my neighbor. And you're like, okay, interesting opening to a conversation. Continue. So yeah, because I know after I murder them, I'm going to feel really guilty. It's the same issue. It's just psychological, right? That means you really do want to. That means, right, if someone comes and says to you on the car, if someone comes and says, if someone says, um, says the opposite, which is, I feel this, my neighbor's like done some really bad stuff to me and I feel this really strong urge to murder them. 
And I'm really disturbed by that because it feels so wrong. Like, oh, okay. There's some morality there, right? There's an urge. Fine, we'll have urges. But like, you, you feel the wrongness of the thing. But a person says, I don't want to do it because afterwards I'll feel guilty. That means you don't feel it's wrong. You just don't, you just know you're going to have psychological anguish afterwards. And so feelings of guilt, feelings of shame, feelings of being, of being dirty, being defiled are a psychological slash spiritual version of punishment. So there's punishment in the sense that, you know, you're afraid that person to be afraid that they're going to suffer financially, socially, whatever. They might be afraid of divine judgment in the afterlife, and they might be afraid of, you know, the spiritual, psychological demons that will haunt them afterwards. But all those things have in common is they don't feel that there's anything wrong per se. That they're, what they're bothered by is the, is, the, is, the, is the reverberation back on them than the actual negativity of the, of, of the, act, the action itself. And so, as far as this goes, fear of punishment is considered a, uh, like a guardrail, a last resort, and it's, it's a negative thing because it makes God and Torah and mitzvahs seen as a threat, seen as an imposition, seen as a negative influence on one's life. It, it requires a person to be fully, solely focused on themselves, um, and that is not conducive whatsoever to cultivating any closeness with Hashem. However, sinning has a far more negative influence, and therefore, if that's the only way to stop a person from sinning, then by all means, be afraid of punishment. Okay. So given that introduction, which I think took half the class, we now have to go back and address what it says in Tanya, that in Tanya mentions these two types of fear, and neither of them are fear of punishment. Okay. I once saw... Um, in the writings of, of, of I think, the Hasid of Hillel Paracher, but I have yet to find that. I saw it once, and I wish I'd written down where it was, that he says that fear of punishment compared to the true fear of God is like a monkey compared to a person, that they're superficially similar, but substantively incomparable. Um, they also have opposable thumbs. But um, I haven't, I, I, I saw it once, and I can't find it again. So anyway, so what are these two types of fear? Can so I, the best, yes, someone this, had a question. Um, does that mean that when it comes to educating children, there's more of an importance in emphasizing, I don't want to say like the relationship with Hashem, but for lack of better words, I'll say that, over emphasizing the importance and like keeping the technical halacha, because when it comes down to it, when they're actually going to be out on their own, if it's just about the technical halacha, then as long as they lose the fear of doing it, it's not going to be an issue at all for them to not keep terror mitzvahs. Like the, the issue around it, that was the focal point that they were raised with. If you, God forbid someone loses that, there's no need or reason to keep it at all. It's really scary. So I, as a general rule, everything worthwhile is dangerous. Um, but the, 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 the attitude, the attitude of raising children is that it should be that God is real. And because God is real, therefore you, Torah mitzvahs are, are important. And the, the main focus of that is, is, is the relationship. Now, children, they're not, children's relationships tend to be one, very one-sided anyway. Children's relationships tend to like, it, you know, but for a, for a child, if you're talking about a if you're talking about like a young child, right? The idea that the idea that you shouldn't do an, a sin because you're gonna get punished by God is not a is not a proper way to educate a child. Um, that's something the Rebbe is quite clear about. But it is entirely clear proper to educate a child that when you do a mitzvah, I, I asked my four year old, and yeah, she's five, but I asked her what she was for. Um, I asked why, you know, why, why, why we shouldn't do various, why we shouldn't sin, which is because it makes Hashem sad, you know. And that the question is, how do you take that thing, which is easy to cultivate in a child when they're four, and continue for, to keep it growing as they mature into, you know, you know, ten, and a teenager, and an adult? That's the challenge. Um, and and frankly, to be quite honest, fear of punishment 
doesn't really work in a secular society, just as a, as a personal observation. Fear of punishment works if you live in a world where everybody believes in divine punishment. And the only difference between you and your non-Jewish neighbors is, you know, what you think God commanded, right? But, but like denying divine punishment in this world and in the afterlife is as ridiculous as someone like denying, I don't know, that the world is round. You have people that do it, but they're the oddball out, right? But if you live in a society where the idea of divine punishment is is itself like a personal belief rather than just part of the, 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 the. There's, a, there's a difference between personal beliefs and culture. If the culture is that there's divine punishment, then fear of punishment is very works. But if divine punishment is a personal belief, then it really does then, then that itself requires a person, you know, their own particular psychological uh, idiosyncratic tendencies for that to work. Um, so I, I, I think that the, pretty clear that and the child that has to be a relationship that being said with children and especially actually easier with children because children a relationship is a concrete thing a relationship is in terms of what you do and how you spend your time and what you don't do and how you like it's very concrete the, the deeper richer aspects of relations don't exist for little kids i would say the problem is i would say the problem is how do you transition from that out of childhood into teenagehood that's where the, the that's where the uh issue comes how do you maintain that relationship Right. aspect as the person gets older right i guess maintenance for fear of punishment is easier if you have an insular society because it requires less yeah security. but it, it requires basically zero maintenance right is it's based on what you're saying is fear of punishment wrong in terms of educating or just less preferable because it almost sounds wrong like it almost sounds like you're wrong so, 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 so the, 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 the Rebbe says very clearly, this is, a, you know, I'm a Lubavitcher, I teach what the Rebbe says. The Rebbe says very clearly that the, the refinement of the world that we have achieved throughout the generations has brought it to the point that educating children with fear of punishment is wrong. Even though in earlier sources, it does say that educating with children with fear of punishment is the right way to do it. The Rebbe said the famous halachic phrase in the Shtanu Itim, that, that in the Shtanu Itim, the times and natures are different. And, and you can see that in actuality, that when you give a child a sense of the meaning and purpose, that is much more motivating to them than the punishment. Um, that, and so the Rebbe is quite clear that that's the wrong way to educate children. Now, if you go back 400 years, was it the wrong way to educate children? No. But that was then and this is now. Now, am I, is, can I tell you, does everybody agree with that? No, that's, that's something that the, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says. But uh, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to have a class for me, then you're going to hear what the Lubavitcher Rebbe thinks on the subject. That's kind of the way it works. So. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Now, so, the, so getting back into these two types of fear. So what is the idea of the fear of the king versus... Um, a fear that's associated with his presence. So what I want to do um, is talk about the, the, the difference between God being king versus um, the, 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 the divine presence and talk a little bit about that difference. Um, and hopefully we'll have enough time to actually then talk about the fear. So what is it that makes somebody a king what is this quality of kingship? Um, this is a very difficult issue because we as a society really don't have kings so much. Um, so it becomes hard to appreciate. There's a famous story that when one of the great Hasidic mentors of the Meshpiyim heard that they had assassinated the Tsar in Russia, he cried and they came and asked him, well, why, are you, uh, why are you so sad? And he said, because I mean, the Tsar wasn't exactly a, a, a lover of Jews, to put it mildly. He says, because now the analogy to understand the kingship of God is lost. How people understand what it means that God is a king. So I'm actually going to use this idea of, 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 of the, the, you know, the czar and a little Russian history to illustrate this idea of being a king. Okay. Now, um, and I think in Russia, it's, it's especially a good analogy because it helps because of the, 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 the historical contrast. So 
For those of you who don't know, I'm going to give you a quick brief history lesson to get the context. Russia used to be an autocracy. There was a king with absolute power. Yeah? We call the king the czar. And then there was a revolution, then they were communists, where there was no king, right? And so there's an interesting thing, how do you go from having a king of absolute power to then, at least in principle, you know, the rule by the people, okay? We're not gonna get into actual discussions of communism and what it really is and how it worked or whatever, but at least that's the, that was the, 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 the idea, right? That the people would rule. So there was a revolution. Okay? Everyone's familiar with that revolution. However, there was actually a revolution before the revolution. There was a Russian revolution where they overthrew the czar and then the communists took over, um, then 1917. But there was a revolution in 1905. And in that revolution, there was a very important event that occurred. Okay. And this really highlights and illustrates the idea of a king um, and how the idea of a king is really, it, 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 it is not, it's not. It's a very interesting. It's a very interesting idea. It's a very unique idea that we don't really have so much. So in Russia at that time, there was a tremendous amount of of poverty. The masses were suffering. There was all sorts of issues. I'm not going to get into it, but it was really, 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 really bad. Okay? And um, a lot. There was big strikes, and workers were not coming to work, and factories were shutting down. It was a huge problem, and the workers got together. And they wrote a petition and they were going to submit it to the czar. And they announced that they were going to come to the palace peacefully, hundreds of thousands or whatever it was, tens of thousands, whatever it is. They were going to come to the czar and they were going to submit their petition to the czar. And why were they going to submit their petition to the czar? Because of course, even though their lives are so miserable, right? The reason why their lives are so miserable is because the czar doesn't know what's going on. Because of course, the czar, our dear beloved king, of course, he loves us. Of course, he cares about us, right? We're his subjects, okay? And so it could only possibly be that we're suffering so much because the czar isn't aware. The czar doesn't know. The evil ministers and government officials and bureaucrats, they are, they're preventing the czar from knowing what's really going on with his people. And so they make this come to great this great petition. And ironically, the czar really didn't know what was going on. And, um, things go bad and there's a lot of shooting and a lot of people die. And this is known historically as Bloody Sunday. And from that point on, the czar's reputation went all the way down. And from that point on, the, the idea that the czar is really their king started to die in Russia. The idea that the czar genuinely, he is, he is the soul of the people. He cares about each and every subject, each and every peasant. They couldn't square this with the idea that they went to peacefully present their grievances to the king, and then to their mind, the king had them all shot. Now, what that means is, and this is what I'm getting at, is that the fear of the king is stems not from his power to use force to get his way, but from the genuine feelings that the people have towards him. The minute that the king has to bring out soldiers to get the people to listen. He's not really a king anymore. And so what happened in Russia at that point is that, that the king being the king died at that point. He was no longer really in the eyes of the people. And obviously it's time to spread, but as people heard about it, 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 it started to make more sense that this is just some guy who has a lot of money and a lot of power. He's taking advantage of us. He's not our king. Our king is our heart. Our king is our soul. Our king is the one who, who, who provides and who cares and ensures the stability of everything. Right? And that sense of being a, 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 a um, the, 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 the core and the support um, of everybody, that, 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 that's a very different thing. And, and, and to, to kind of just illustrate this, in um, we do have kings left in Saudi Arabia. There's there's still a king, you know that there's still there's still a king in Saudi Arabia. So there's an idea in in, in mo countries that have kings, all countries that have like real kings, that you can petition the king, and if there's a lot of people in the king, so there's people that are on behalf of the stand on behalf of the king. So the king might have a representative, what's called what we call a governor. So he is like he he is he represents the king. He's not a he, 
it's not just that there's a government, he represents the king. And so in Saudi Arabia, they actually have a thing once a month, the governor had, you can come to the governor and bring up any issue to the governor and behalf, and that's as if you're representing the king, and the governor will t- can decide to take up your issue personally. The idea being that if the governor represents the king, the king is there for all of his subjects. The king is the heart and the soul and the and 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 and, and the, the the energy and the life of each individual subject. And each individual subject has a tremendous amount of loyalty and fealty, and 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 feels a, a bond. Okay, that is not how modern societies cultivate. We have the idea of the autonomous individual citizen. We are all sovereign in and of ourselves. And so the idea of someone being king means that he is your life and he is your source. And, 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 and the more that someone is, 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 has that role over a vast number of different people in different circumstances, the greater is his kingship. Someone who different people in different circumstances all turn to as the source of their strength and their comfort and, their, and, and security and and he is he 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 is invested in providing that, then he is a greater king. So this idea of a king means that you means that that it's not that he is imposing on you, but that there is this element of being able to provide, and that people people respect that people feel a, a sense of a, a sense of loyalty to that, a sense of bond to that, a sense of appreciation for that. And that dynamic, by the way, exists even in the modern society, just on a smaller level. So like you'll often have in situations where somebody, there's a, there's a group and somebody just naturally, everyone gravitates to that person, that this person gets the group to work well together. They make sure everybody is heard, everybody's issues are being met and not necessarily anybody officially appointed into the task, but they have something that kind of creates cohesion and allows everybody to have their place and allows everyone to feel like their needs are getting met, right? And they, they bring everyone together and raise them to a higher level. And if you have somebody like that, who's able to do that, not for a group of five people or 10 people, but for hundreds of thousands of people, and you establish society around such a person, that's a king, okay? So the essence of a king is there's something in their character that allows them to have influence on other people and, and, and guide them to a sort of higher and nobler ends and arrange and, and society being arranged in a better way. Not that they have the power to impose that. Okay? So there's an English word, fealty. Okay? Which, and that's kind of the feeling that one has towards their king. Now, Not that I- means being, yeah. Is this related? I don't remember exactly when, but I think we had a class with you where you spoke about uh, Romimut, like uh, different kinds right, of right. power and authority and like how some people just have a natural, um, right. I don't know. Right. So that's what you're talking right. about with kingship? Right, right. So the idea is that the, the, the idea is, I wasn't going to get into that so much here. The idea is that the thing that the person has inside is something called in Hebrew, Romimut or Romimut, which I guess we translate as something as, as, exaltedness that they that people get a sense that this person is in touch with something um higher um and that they 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 that they're that as much as they're with people they're they're not really they're 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 operating they're operating in a, in a, a little bit above everybody else not necessarily that they're smarter or something i don't want to get so much into that because that's not really the main topic the, the but the point is that this means that they have a certain sway over people, a certain influence over people that doesn't require the use of power or force or coercion or convincing or manipulating. It, it, one, of the effects that, uh, one of the effects that a Rebbe can have is through this method. Yes. Um, in fact, traditionally, a, 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 a Hasidic Rebbe tends to use more this a thing about being a melech, this, 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 this dynamic much more than being a teacher. Um, in fact, Chabad is actually quite unique in that the Rebbe is not, also has an idea of actually trying to educate and teach um, 
which is a different idea because when you're educating and you're teaching, what you're trying to do is get somebody to know what you know, to see what you see, to understand what you understand, which is not happening in this dynamic. So the Baal Shem Tov really didn't do so much of the teaching, but he definitely had this effect on people. And so that kind of thing, that means that this power, this person has a tremendous um, greatness when it comes to the way they influence others. Um, the, the, the sway they have over others. However, if you take a king and you drop him on a desert island and he's living there all by himself, how, how is he any different than some other person living on a deserted island all by themselves? In what way is now this person, um, what way does this person stand out? And the answer is they don't. Okay? In other words, kingship is a quality which only is relevant, is only is manifest in its influence on others. There is no internal experience of being, of, of, having, this, of having this quality. In fact, one of the things that Chassidah says is that somebody who has this quality often is unaware that they have it. Because there's no, it's not like love or hatred or wisdom or determination, which are things you experience vis-a-vis -vis your own self in your own life and your own challenges. This is something others experience in you, but you don't experience it within yourself. Can I ask a question? Okay. Yes. Um, is, what are the factors that come together to cause this kind of person to exist? Meaning, is it something like it almost sounds like exotic where like it's not like a natural personality trait well, I, something well, that i'll just say this it's a, it's a distinct trait it is not the product of other things okay it's like vision is not the product of your other senses it's a distinct sense okay right so like it's not like if you in like like God needs to create a person with the ability to see, right? If God creates a person, doesn't give them the ability to see, then they're not going to see. So there's an actual bracha you make when you see an actual king, a real king. And a real king is someone who has authority over life and death. There's some discussion about how that works with modern governments, but let's just set that aside for the moment. And the bracha is that God actually is... Um, you're, you're, you're making a blessing that God gave his, this quality, which actually exists in God, and he bestowed it onto people, into a person. Or in the case of the Jew, this is a slightly different blessing for those who fear him. But the idea is that it is actually a God-given trait. Wisdom is a distinct trait. Vision is a distinct trait. Emotions are distinct. This is a distinct thing. It is not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's, 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 it's not a, product of particular circumstance. So God creates people and he gives them more or less of certain traits and this is one of the traits. Are they necessary? And by the way, it doesn't make the person moral. Like the czar, like it doesn't make the person a moral person. Right? Just yeah. like being being smart doesn't make you moral. So they're not necessarily more righteous. No. They're just no. more talented not at all. in this way. They're more they're the kind of person they're the kind of person that people listen to. That's the best way of it. People listen to, not because they're trying to get people to listen to them necessarily. And not because they're the smartest person and not because they're the most charismatic person and not because they're the most empathetic person. But people have a sense that this person, right, the, the reason why we use the word Ramos, exalted, is there's something else about them. Okay, but the, the main point I want to emphasize is that this quality, if you think about it, it's kind of like, if you take like the example, like something like fragility, right? How do you know if something is fragile? Like glass, how do you know if it's fragile glass or not? Because it breaks. it breaks. So until it breaks, you have two things, one's fragile, one's not. Can you tell the difference? So, Malchus, this quality of kingship is like that. How do you know someone has it? How do other people re react to them? But if there are no other people, there's no, it's not anything discernible. 
Wow. It's not an internal thing. It's a property that is only experienced by others. It, there's something about you that others experience, but it's not something that's, that, that, that's intrinsic to your own self-experience. So it's not like your, your, your degree of wisdom or intelligence or how um, empathetic you are, how emotional you are, or how, or how serene you are. Those are things that you'd experience vis-a-vis -vis yourself. This is something others experience in you, but you don't really experience in yourself. And so absent the others, it ceases to have any reality. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, let's say you take a person who is a shallow person and you put them on a desert island. And let's say you take a person who's not a shallow person. They're a noble person. They're a deep person. They're a profound person. Uh, just to give you a, just a quick um, uh, uh, frame of reference for what I mean, there's a nice saying, I don't know where it comes from, but I think it, it has truth to it, which is that um, small people or shallow people speak about other people. Regular people speak about things. And great people, deep people, profound people, they speak about ideas. Right? In other words, somebody that's living their life and they're, they're, they're very shallow, very uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Okay. Well, there's truth to it. Right. So if you take a person whose whole life is like, you know, gossip and who did what and like, and they're just very small and shallow and petty. And you take another person whose, whose whole life is, is, is inner life is about the really big fundamental things about, you know, what life is all about purpose and meaning and, and, and truth and the nature of reality and God. Right. And you put both those people in a desert island. Is there a huge difference between them? Sure, there is right? How they spend their time, how they experience, how they deal with the challenge. It's an entirely different experience for these two types of people because there's something within them vis-a-vis -vis themselves that's very different. One is a, one is a more noble, um, um, grander person and one is a more shallow person. Okay. So the idea is that there are elements about, about someone which are real, but they're only real because there's others around. And that's what sovereignty is. That's what kingship is. That's what malchus is. It's real, but it gains its reality by others because all it is is how other, it's, it's, it's this thing about you that makes others react in a certain way. So You'll, you'll forgive me if I don't answer your question because it has to do with a particular disagreement about how you orient your metaphysics. Um, and we're going to leave that alone. Because if I get into that, A, I have to lose a lot of people. B, we have five minutes left. Um, but if you want, you can send me a, 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 an email and maybe I'll time I'll, I'll try and address it. Okay. Whereas other things like a person's wisdom, a person's, a, a person's sense of meaning and purpose and that kind of stuff, that really is an, an internal experience. So now when you're talking about God, what makes God great? What makes God um, better? Is it God's influence on the world? Or is it something that has to do with God vis-a-vis -vis himself? Anything that is God's influence on the world, but absent the world, there's no reality to that, is really subsumed in the idea of God's kingship. God's kingship is what is what, what effect does God have on the world? That's because of something about God that allows him to have an effect on the world. That's his kingship. Just like we said, the kingship is how others react to you. What is it about you that makes others listen to you? What is it about God that makes creations able to be exist from God, be enlivened by God, be governed by God. There's something about God that gives him sway over all of reality. That's his kingship. But if God is just unto himself, that is irrelevant. And so there's the glory of his presence. What is, what is great about God absent the idea of his, of his influence on creation, absent how creation responds to God? What is what is grand and great about God? What is glorious about God within himself? Okay. 
And these are two very different things. One is called chitzonius, the external dimension of God's greatness. And the other is called pnimius, the internal dimension. Right? And that's what he says when he says it's a deeper fear. The Hebrew word there is pnimius. It's coming from a it's coming from a deeper or internal thing because it's it's a it's it's an emotion. We'll talk about this in the next class. It's an emotion that's reacting to God, not the sway God has over reality, over creation, but what is grand and glorious about God in and of himself, absent the idea of creation. Whereas his kingship is that there's something special about God that gives him sway over all reality, that allows him to create and enliven and govern and to maintain everything that exists. But if he wouldn't do those things, then that quality just wouldn't be manifest. That quality wouldn't be relevant. Right? So this is the difference between seeing God as via the role that he plays in reality. That's his malchus, that's his kingship. Versus seeing God as he is unto himself, if there, even if there wouldn't be a created reality. That's the glory of his presence. And we'll continue this next time. But neither of these have to do with fear of punishment. As, as we will explain. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi.